Thank you for downloading Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, an exploration of the Book of Samuel. This series is a production of Pardes North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network and is lovingly sponsored by the Newstein family in memory of Rabbi Dr. Joseph Newstein for his fourth yard site. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. And now, Michael Hatton. Welcome back, everyone. This is Michael Hatton from Jerusalem, and this is our Pardes podcast on Sefer Shemuel. Last time we considered the opening of the book, we met Elkanah and his two wives. We discussed the rivalry between Penina and Chana, and Chana's eventual triumph culminating in her eloquent prayer of gratitude. I should just point out that in rabbinic literature, Chana emerges as a paragon. The Talmud in Berachot, page number 31a, teaches us that Chana has so much to offer in terms of helping us understand what, a, what an ideal prayer looks like. An ideal prayer is about focus. An ideal prayer is about enunciation, being able to say the words. And an ideal prayer is about silence. It doesn't have to be loud. You don't have to scream because God can hear. In effect, the rabbis are teaching us Chana's prayer, as we pointed out, ironically mistaken by Eli as drunkenness, but Chana's prayer actually becomes the template for the Shmonesre, the ultimate expression of liturgy in our tradition. The Shmonesre is about standing before God. It's about focus in terms of that encounter. It's about saying the words carefully and enunciating them, and it is a silent prayer. And we are invited to insert into the Shmonesre in the course of the blessings that form its structure, anything that pertains to our own personal predicaments so that it becomes an expression of sincerity and of what we truly need when we stand before God. Chana becomes, as it were, the source, the inspiration for that idea, which is another way of saying that her prayer in Sefer Shemuel is an ideal. We now turn to a contrast, because even as Chana's prayer serves as an inspiration, the people who actually minister at Shiloh are far from sincerity. The sons of Eli, the high priest, Chofni Ufinchas, in verse number 12, are characterized as B'nai Bilial, base men, coarse men. Remember that Chana had turned to Eli and said, Don't think I'm drunk. Don't think I, I am a Bat Bilial. But of course, ironically, that is precisely what Eli's own sons are. And the verse concludes, Lo yadu et Hashem, they did not know God. What a harsh indictment that the priests who minister at the top of the heap in Shiloh, the national shrine, should not know God. Verse number 13 in chapter 2 reports, Umishpat HaKohanim, the priests had a, a rule. This is how they dealt with the people. 
When anyone brought a sacrifice, the priest's boy would come along with a three-pronged fork, a trident, while the meat was boiling. He would thrust it into the cauldron, the kettle, the great pot, or the small cooking pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take away on it. This was the practice at Shiloh with all the Israelites who came there. A person offered a sacrifice. The servant boy of the priest would arrive with his trident. A trident, by the way, is used to turn the sacrificial meat on the altar until it's consumed. But here it's being wielded as a weapon. He used that trident, he thrust it into the pot, and he took whatever meat he wanted from the hapless Israelite who had offered sacrifice. And this was, the text reports, Mishpat HaKohanim, the law that the priests had made for themselves and the law that they demanded be followed in fraction number one. In fraction number two, even before the fat was turned into smoke on the altar, the priest's boy would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, hand over some meat to roast for the priest. He won't accept boiled meat from you, only raw. And if the man protested and said, wait until the fat is offered on the altar, he would reply, no, hand it over at once, or I will take it by force. So in the second infraction, the priests demand their share of the meat before the fat has been offered on the altar. So these two infractions actually are in direct contravention to what the Torah mandates in Vayikra at the end of chapter seven. There the Torah says very clearly two things. Number one, no one may partake of the sacrificial meat before the fat is offered on the altar. That, as it were, is God's share. And a sacrifice is about deference towards God before it's about honor towards others. And number two, the priests have a share of the peace offering, but not whatever they want. It is designated and mandated. It is the chazeh and the shok. It is the breast and the thigh of the sacrificial animal, and that's it. And in effect, Chofni and Pinchas are running an extortion racket. They take what they want, when they want, and they show no deference to God or to man. The sin of those men was very, very great, the text reports because they had disgraced the offerings of God. But in the next breath, verse number 18, there is a glaring contrast. Shimuel mesharetet pnei Hashem. Shimuel served before God, wearing a garment of linen. His mother would make him a small coat and she would bring it for him year by year when she came with her husband to offer the sacrifices. So in glaring contrast to the sons of Eli is the young Shimuel, innocent and pure. And this contrast will repeat again in the chapter. 
And of course, there is something tragic in all of this. Even as a Lee cannot raise his own sons to be devoted servants of God as he is, he is able to tutor Shemuel to fulfill that role, becoming, as it were, Shemuel's surrogate father in the process. And Eli blessed Elkanah and Hannah, praying that they should have more children, which they did, such that Hannah had three sons and two daughters besides Shemuel, but the most serious crime of Eli's sons is reported in verse number 22. Eli was very old, and he heard what his sons did to all of Israel. How they would lie with the women who assembled at the opening of the tent of meeting. What an abuse of power. What a terrible crime perpetrated against women who were vulnerable. Who else would come to the house of God to assemble? Women like Chana, women in crisis, women in need of comfort and understanding. And those are precisely the women that the sons of Eli would take advantage of. Some of the rabbis were so shocked by the report that they refused to take it literally, understanding that in fact what happened was women would come, their sacrifices would be delayed, they would be forced to stay overnight. It's as if the sons of Eli slept with them. But of course, Rashi indicates this is not the straightforward reading of the text. And in fact, it's quite clear from the context that the crimes as reported took place. Eli protested, but his protests were too weak. I have heard, he says, the rumors. The people are speaking about it. The rumors that I'm hearing are not very good. Albanai, don't act this way, my children. But there's too much affection in his voice, too much softness, too much acceptance. Where is the harsh rebuke towards his sons that Eli offered earlier to Hana when he thought that she was drunk? Clearly, Eli is not capable of reprimanding his own children. And that, of course, is a tragedy. The Sofforno, a medieval Italian commentary, points out that we will shortly learn that Eli suffers from blindness. And the Sforna will say that blindness that is spoken of with respect to Eli is not only literal, but it's also figurative, which is to say he refuses to see what his own sons are up to. In effect, says the Sforno, Eli's blindness with respect to his sons is similar to Isaac's blindness with respect to his son, Esav as reported in chapter 27 of Genesis. 
Isaac could not see for his life anything negative about a sub his firstborn and therefore wanted to bestow the blessing upon him even though his character was tainted. So the physical blindness, as it were, was just an expression of the willful blindness and the inability to see the crimes of his children. And so too for Eli. The text reports, by the way, Eli hears the rumors. He hears what his sons have done, but it never reports that he sees it because he refuses to see it. And in glaring contrast, once again, verse 26, after having reported this most serious of crimes, indicates, As for the lad Shimuel, he was growing up good, both with God as well as with other people. The crimes of the sons of Eli were ritual crimes and moral crimes. Shimuel's greatness was to develop his character such that he was able to interact with other people properly and to be devoted to God. And sometimes that's a tall order. We meet people who may be very moral people, but they can't, for the life of them, develop a relationship with God. We meet people who might be incredibly devoted to the service of God, but they haven't developed their character such that they can interact constructively with other people. And Shimuel now emerges as the ideal, combining both, to quote the rabbis, ben adam lamakom and ben adam lachavero, in direct contrast to the sons of Eli, who are deficient in both areas. And so a man of God appears. Vayavo ish Elohim el Eli, a man of God appears to Eli and he offers a prophecy of doom. God says, I surely appeared to your ancestors, Eli, and I appointed them as priests. I chose them from among all of the tribes of Israel to be my priests. Why then do you maliciously trample upon the sacrifices and offerings that I have commanded? You have honored your sons more than me. Feeding on the first portions of every offering of my people Israel. And now the doom is pronounced. The house of Eli will no longer serve at the shrine where God's presence rests, but God will instead choose another priest who will be more loyal and more sincere. I shall not cut off all of your offspring from my altar, but to make your eyes pine and your spirit languish all the increase in your house shall die as ordinary men. This shall be a sign for you. The fate of your two sons, Chofni and Pinchas, they shall both die on the same day. So the prophecy is very, very harsh. The crime is very, very severe. 
And interestingly enough, God says, even while your dynasty, Eli, will no longer officiate as the high priests in control of the shrine, your family will continue to be involved, only to watch their rivals overcome them and usurp their place. There is, in fact, a perfect parallel in this prophecy between the fate of the house of Eli, who abuse their power and therefore will be deposed only to watch their rivals prevail, that is a perfect parallel for the relationship of Pinina and Chana reported earlier. Pinina abused her position. Blessed with children, she used that in order to cause Chana great pain and suffering. And in the end, Chana prevailed. And Pinina, as it were, was forced to watch her triumph from the side. In a similar vein, the man of God says, that will be the fate of the house of Eli. I should just point out that in terms of the genealogies, Aaron the priest had two surviving sons, Elazar and Itamar. These ultimately evolved into two separate priestly lines, the house of Elazar and the house of Itamar. For much of the biblical period, it was the house of Elazar that was ascendant, but Eli and his dynasty was from the house of Itamar instead. God therefore says, the day will come when the house of Eli will be deposed and the house of Elazar will be restored when I appoint my righteous priest. And so it was later in the biblical story. I will establish my devoted priest, my Kohen Ne'eman, who will follow what is in my heart, says God, and I will make for him a dynasty and he will walk before my anointed forever. Once again, a reference to the anointed, which in this case, once again, means the king. Just as Hannah had concluded her prayer of gratitude in anticipation of an anointed king taking the stage to restore order, to rule with justice and righteousness, the man of God envisages a similar outcome once the house of Eli is deposed. In effect, these chapters are all about abuse of power how people with authority sometimes misuse that in order to take advantage of the weak and the vulnerable, how they cause pain and suffering, how they commit crime. These chapters are a harsh indictment not only of Penina and her behavior, but of the priestly line that ministers to God at Shiloh, as if to say, it doesn't matter what the structure is. It might be the family. It might be the community. It might be the government. People who have power must wield it responsibly with justice and with righteousness. Otherwise, they represent nothing. And ultimately, 
they will be swept away. Next time we will continue with chapter 3 as we follow Shmuel's steady ascent to a position of authority at Shiloh, even as the house of Eli begins its precipitous decline. Thank you again for listening to Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, a production of Parties North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network. If you liked what you just heard, please give a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.